I'm David Bank, Editor and CEO of Impact Alpha, and this is a special Institutional Shift edition of the Agents of Impact podcast. Everyone likes to believe that uh, there's a magic moment in time when everybody gets it. Uh, the reality is that about 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the companies or individuals get it, and they run ahead and they take it. That's Dave Chen. CEO of Equilibrium Capital, the Portland-based manager of sustainable real assets. Dave has been one of our guides to the institutional shift as the world's biggest pools of capital gradually and then suddenly change course. As he has for several years, Dave joined me to look out over the big themes in sustainable finance in the year ahead. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi, Dave. Hey, good morning. Hey, we've been doing this now for at least four years, this sort of year ahead, year roundup of predictions and trends. I will say you're pretty damn good at framing it up for us. So we're, we're, we're going to let's let's dig in. As you said in the in the warm up, we've been doing this for a long time. Now people are listening. Now people care, right? Yep. Um, this stuff has gotten so real, both on the level of the systemic risks, as they say, and also of the opportunities and solutions that are coming up. Um, and just give our, our listeners the briefest context of um, what Equilibrium is and how you know anything about this. Yeah, we uh, uh, we founded the firm in 2008, and we are one of the uh, wave of investment managers that targeted sustainability as a competitive advantage and targeted the institutional investors, uh, specifically pensions and sovereign wealth funds, as the source of capital uh, for where we uh, compete. And we've been historically players in the real assets categories. So let's 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 leave that the, the the one thing that folks should know is that you you know we call this the institutional shift because as you said you optimized equilibrium for kind of institutional investors and indeed have attracted and and uh institutional investors so you know something of what the pension funds and others are looking for and investing in. And let's actually start there because that's kind of the the headline. I mean, what are we seeing in the institutional in the institutional shift? So here's five, six topics that I think, uh, as we look out into 2022, uh, uh, we certainly will be focused on. And, and I think that, 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 you know, in terms of the, the hot trends or the hot topics or the hot predictions, number one, uh, the benefit corporations, uh, go mainstream. So what started uh, in 2008-9 as uh, part of the B Corp and B Labs movement uh, really takes a hold this year. And you're going to see the public companies, the global companies, uh, the global 500 type companies starting to uh, uh, sincerely debate uh, the benefit corporation laws, uh, the benefit corporation, I'll call it governance construct and really start to question the rollback of the Milton Friedman uh, shareholder supremacy uh, uh, philosophical driver for corporate behavior. Okay, Dave, I'm going to stop you right there because this one we're going to give you a point in advance um, because um, no less than Larry Fink has said that he wants to see corporations at least consider this uh, um, as well. So weird, strangely, this benefit corporation um, idea has gone from the fringes to the mainstream 
rather quickly. Leo Strine, who was the chancellor of the of the uh, was a, the chief justice of the Chancellery Court of Delaware, was dying to have case law presented uh, a case presented to him before he retired, and you know it took a little bit longer. But but I think this is the year that that uh, the the law gets gets exercised. Uh, the second major thing that that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we always have to appreciate is that, that, that there is a gestation period for all great thinking. And regulators globally this year will start taking the issue of climate risk seriously as a financial risk. So the Mark Carney speech of 2015 at the Bank of England uh, this year, I think. The tragedy of the horizon, I believe it was called. Yes, will now become uh, uh, regulations and law. And SASB. Uh, this year will complete the consolidation of standards on a global basis and uh, with the full support of regulators and of major authorities uh, around uh, the uh, the G8. So Janine Galat becomes a very, very important person over the course of, she already is, but but, but in 2022, uh, this is now going to be a, a global leadership position uh, that, that, that I think exemplifies the regulators' uh, seriousness about this. Well, and and there has been, as you say, a kind of consolidation around these. You know, some people sort of, you know, sort of d- dispatch it as you know the alphabet soup. But there is kind of a consolidation around what what has to get measured and reported, and a kind of new way that corporations have to institutionalize this into into everything from you know their balance sheets to to everything else. So, what is that? You know. That sounds like a good thing, but what is that going to actually, you know, drive? Why does it matter that there's now sort of sustainability reporting and and um, that's that's kind of getting increasingly standardized? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that one of the things that it won't do is create uh, what I think is a somewhat un, unrealistic expectation for a unified uh, picture uh, uh, of what uh, sustainability and goodness is. What it will do, though is it will increase uh, the kinds of ways that these things are in fact measured. So in other words, uh, it doesn't make it easy that with one simple number or one simple attribute, you'll be able to uh, make decisions on whether a corporation is being sustainable sustainable and uh, managing their climate risk or not, but it will make that set of data now a, a called an auditable, uh, yeah. legally attributable uh, uh, function. So, so I think it, it, it's, a, it's a massive step forward. But, but this category has had this mythology for a decade now that there'll be this magical metric that will make uh, judgment easy. It won't, but it will increase the, the legal assertion of uh, the, these kinds of data. I think there's another side of the coin which, which plays into this, which is also happening, which was going to be one of my uh, predictions for the year, which is the the rising price of carbon um, around the world, which is a sort of a proxy or a, a leading indicator of sort of pricing nature and pricing a lot of things that used to be considered externalities. And as you combine that phenomena with what you're just talking about, you start to actually get some real numbers and some real economic, um, you know, drivers in corporate accounting. So the carbon markets in the, in 2021, um, were, were, were up very strongly. And people, I think, think that this year too, as, you know, sort of regulatory compliance regimes, um, tighten up that the supply and demand things, uh, 
curve will make prices go even higher. So you started to get something people have been talking about again for many years, but finally happening, you know, a real price on carbon. That was actually my uh, number three item. Uh, for, for <laughs> I'm glad year. I got it in before you then, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you got to save a few for me. <laughs> uh, carbon uh, is not a fad, and it's a lot harder than it looks. And I, and I would say that three things are going to become apparent this year. One is that carbon is uh, the carbon credits themselves and all the various environmental services that go along with that are going to be understood to be actually a commodity in, in a sense of they follow a supply demand curve. And, uh, and uh, we're going to find that the uh, development of, of supply is so woefully um, uh, under what is uh, now emerging as as. Uh, this, I think, wave of demand. Just to be clear what we mean by supply and demand here, supply of projects that meaningfully and significantly and verifiably reduce or sequester and uh, carbon. And then the demand is people is companies and others buying that for either to satisfy their voluntary net zero commitments or their mandatory compliance uh, various places. You know that old, uh, that old movie, uh, uh, Christmas movie, every time a bell rings and it means that an angel got a set of wings. Well, every time a net zero a commitment is made, a ton of, uh, of carbon uh, commitments were just made. And these are, you know, again, this is one of these things people have talked about for a long time, but now that is fetching you know, at least, you know, upwards of 20 bucks a ton and sometimes even higher and the different markets obviously have different pricing, but it becomes, um, and the expectation that it's going higher itself has its own sort of self-fulfilling prophecy as everybody starts to make decisions about investments and other things based on the price of carbon. It's, it's, it's actually rather phenomenal. You know, to use that fancy language, it is clearly a market signal, uh, which leads me also to, uh, uh, expect that within the carbon markets, as much as everyone loves the idea of exchanges and marketplaces, because of the strategic nature of carbon, uh, we're going to see massive point-to-point trades, bilateral agreements. In other words, uh, when you have a company that uh, needs a billion dollars worth of carbon inventory uh, to fill their demand side, they're not going to the open market and the merchant market. They're going to contract for it. So just the same way that that stocks trade uh, both uh, in point-to-point block trades as well as on open exchanges, you're going to see the, I think, the the, the big activity in carbon uh, being point-to-point trades. And that ha- that's possibly a step in the direction towards a sort of global interoperable market. But I think you're right that people have sort of given up on the hope for one single market. And I think, you know, whether it's blockchain and crypto or, or as you said, these point to point transactions and other things that sort of there will be, you know, de facto prices and, and, and a sort of um, clearinghouse prices and benchmark prices, and, you know, the way oil has in other commodities, right? And as you say, carbon may be, become the most the most important global commodity. I mean, if you listen to Mark Carney and others, like you, like you said. Yeah, for us, our, our big aha this year is we're one of the largest producers of renewable natural gas in the country. And I think one of the big ahas for us is that we are actually producing not one commodity out of our RNG facilities, but we're actually producing four traded commodities that each have their own supply demand uh, behavior. And, and I think that very, very small that's insight just, has really just, changed our, our behavior. Just slow down and, and remind people what that means. That means dairy and other uh, agricultural facilities, 
sending you manure and other ways to digest in your biogas digesters and turn into natural gas that put into the pipeline and you sell the natural gas just like natural gas right um, but you also sell the 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 credits so we're selling natural gas we're selling natural gas as a non-fossil fuel uh, source because it's coming from farm uh, waste and and food waste uh, that type of natural gas, non-fossil based natural gas, has a value to certain fleets, uh, you know, truck fleets, garbage truck fleets, uh, uh, transportation fleets. And then we sell various forms of credits. And each of those are a separate, distinct commodity with their own separate pricing, their own supply demand curves, and their separate attributes. But I think you were telling me you make more from the credits than you do from the gas. The charts are remarkable. And and methane, which is the the, the key thing there, as as you as you said, is both um, priced higher and also um, more potent as a as a greenhouse gas, certainly in the short run, um, and so therefore you know even more urgent to get it out of the supply chain. Um, um, so they're really a, not just a carbon market; there's a methane market that's that's functioning, right? That is correct. That, that is correct. Which leads me to the last thing about carbon. In terms of a prediction, and that is, uh, I've I've not been a huge advocate for the use of crypto in various sustainability areas, or but but I do think that there is a very distinct opportunity for uh, blockchain uh, to be used, and and that is that in some ways uh, multiple entities and multiple parts of the value chain want to quote unquote get credit, no pun intended, for the carbon credit. And, and so we have our institutional investors asking us questions like, hey, if my capital created the opportunity for you to create this carbon credit, how do I get credit for doing that? They're not saying that they bought the credit. They're saying that my capital created the opportunity. And then you know, my answer back is, is well, in the same way that, that, that your capital and my work, our work, uh, created that credit, and yet we don't get credit for that. All right. So, 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 I think one of the I- I applications that will start to take place here is uh, the use of blockchain to take a single unrefutable carbon credit and then attach to it various attributes: uh, the capital that fostered it, the intermediary that created it, and then the ultimate consumer or the holder of the credit. Uh, the farmer that, in fact, you know, had the cow that that, that created the manure. Uh, so I think that there'll be multiple ways of, of thinking about this. In some ways, it's the same way that we think about GDP uh, and the fact that, that GDP has multiple hands in it. There's the miner of the, uh, of the iron ore. There's the, uh, the steel manufacturer. There is the uh, ultimate rolled steel that becomes potentially a car, and then ultimately the dealership that sells the car. All along the way, uh, you're creating value from an original source uh, material along the way. And I think that carbon credit is going to have to have a similar concept of thinking, which is who are the various entities that legitimately uh, uh, had a hand or a value add in, in the process on the way to the ultimate creation of the credit. 
That's that's fascinating. It's kind of the flip side of what was going to be one of mine uh, trends, which we called out the other day in Impact Alpha. The, um, um, scope three will be a phrase that people uh, learn in 2022, um, and it's sort of the inverse of that. It's the all of the, the 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 direct and indirect effects of your operations in terms of the carbon emissions, um, and even the the indirect use, like for example, in the classic case, is that the gasoline um, that is burned in your car um, is not counted in the scope one or two emissions of the oil company because you burned it in your car and it wasn't them that burned it. So, um, uh, but when when you count scope three, you get these secondary effects, like you said, and you start to see the whole ecosystem of of charges. And you're saying that you can get you can get the flip side, you can get the credit for mitigating those those emissions. Yeah, and I, I think this will be an ideal use for the the distributed uh, registry and 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 the blockchain technology. Uh, the fourth trend that that uh, or I don't know thing that we'll watch in 2022 is uh, net zero uh, uh, shifts to uh oh, and um, other than uh, all these declarations of net zero becoming the uh, the uh, the boom time for consulting firms mm. uh, that will be uh, uh, doing these engagements and studies for how these companies will get to it. Uh, I think there's some pretty dramatic implications of this, and that is, um, you know, people don't like doing the hard things. Companies don't like doing the hard things, and so, you know, if if I if I think about this as uh, the road to net zero, you know, I, I jokingly say that there's three phases of it. One phase is, hey, everybody in our company, let's tighten it up a little bit, so we we'll use a little bit less energy. Uh, number two, hey, why don't we go out and get offsets and credits, and that'll help us. And then the third phase is, if you really think about what net zero means, I mean, we just got done with 100 years of, of, of building uh, corporations, sectors, enterprises, business models, all built on consumption of, of energy and, well, frankly, consumption of resources and environmental services. And to get to net zero, if you think about just that word, it means that we're going to reverse that trend. That means re-engineering of corporations, re-engineering of processes, re-engineering of markets uh, and business models. And so, you know, I remember at the dawning of uh, the first Obama administration, there was, uh, there was a thing called the New Economy Coalition. Well, I, I think net zero's implication is uh, new economy. And this is going to take, you know, I don't know if it takes decades but it's certainly going to be one of the, 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 the major shifts that's going to take place in corporations across this decade. And that is the recognition that you're going to be re-engineering your corporation. Let me let me ask you a question because this is something you and I have talked about over the years, and you know there's always this fabled you know tipping point or inflection points, and and we've been talking about the need for all of the solutions and the financing and the the sort of deployment to go exponential, quote unquote, because the urgency is so great, as you said, net zero to uh oh, um, you would think that once that ball starts rolling, um, that the acceleration could be very fast and the doubling could happen very fast and things and, and goals that were set for 2050 become 2040 and 2040 becomes 2030 and things really speed up. I mean, that's kind of what has to happen for us to have a outside shot at sort of averting the worst effects of climate change. 
we know that can happen. We know the theory behind it, but we don't quite ever quite see it. I mean, um, carbon emi- uh, carbon emissions ticked back up, you know, in 2021 after dropping in 2020 because of the initial sort of pandemic shutdowns. And so, you know, even the even when we got them down, we couldn't keep them down and they're back up uh, uh, almost as much. And, and, you know, we don't have that many years to get this acceleration going. So how do you see that acceleration playing out? You know, gestation periods are long and you know hope goes up and down during those gestation periods and 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 then as you said we hit these somewhat unpredictable inflection points and from there on and uh, it starts to 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 you know, go through that 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 s curve and we certainly saw that with uh, cell phones we saw it with smartphones we saw it with ATM machines we saw it with the internet and uh, and I think and, and, and frankly, we saw, you know, IOT now sounds like old hat, but that was talked about for, again, uh, 10, 15, 20 years. And there was innovation that was happening every year. It just didn't catch on. And, and I think you're seeing the same thing happening. And I mean, how would you like to graduate today uh, as the top of your class in uh, mechanical engineering uh, or in thermal dynamics, uh, focused on, you know, blowing up gasoline within a cylinder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, 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 the internal combustion engine sales, I think in, in countries like Norway is something like, you know, f- you know, 4% of all sales now. So it's like, once it falls off the cliff, it it's, it's gone. And, um, it's, it's going to hit and everyone likes to believe that, uh, there's a magic moment in time when everybody gets it. Now, the reality is that about 10 or 15 or 20% of the companies or individuals get it and they run ahead and they take it. And the mythology is that everyone has a chance to catch up, you know, but at the same token, we always uh, jokingly talk about, well, gosh, I'd, I'd hate to be the buggy whip uh, manufacturer. Well, we're seeing that. And the notion of stranded assets is now alive and well. The leaders and the laggards theory. We've always we've always thought of that as the sort of theory of change, like you say that that every sector, every industry, every will will split, and some people will take the chance to to to, to run ahead, as you say, just like they do in other sort of tech and economic disruptions. Which actually uh, bears out one of your earlier um, predictions, Dave, which we took this year and ran with um, Renewco's. Um, and everybody wants to spin out their EVs, obviously, but other kinds of renewable and sustainable businesses, because now all of a sudden, those businesses are the hot businesses getting the higher valuations and the cheaper capital. And all of a sudden, the shoe is on the other foot. And um, they want the, and, and, the, and the EV unit, which, which is, has no revenues, is, is worth more than the, the old line business, which has decades or, or, or more of, of revenue. So Harley Davidson spinning out its electric uh, motorcycles um, and uh, there's pressure on all the oil companies. Uh, there's activist investors pressing Shell to spin off its renewable assets from its legacy oil and gas um, um, Renewcos. Yeah, you, if you attend an oil and gas conference in Houston in 2021, you'd, you'd almost swear that was a revival meeting. Um, you know that um, because of oil prices. No, singing the songs and praise of renewable energy and oh, uh, oh. and the hallelujah of uh, uh, of uh, leaving the carcass of oil and gas behind, to the extent that LPs, limited partners in the institutional world, 
sometimes now are making comments and 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 uh, about the oil and gas partnerships that are now coming in, having had the newfound um, discovery of the importance of renewable energy. And so, I think there's a lot of quote unquote this kind of 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 uh, change taking place, which in some ways. Uh, leads to my fifth observation, and that is that I think in 2022, you saw it starting to happen last year uh, and the year before, but but we're going to start to see, uh, and, and we're seeing it now, a, a significant generational shift in players and voices on this set of topics. Um, it, it's going to be the classic crossing the chasm, uh, Jeffrey Moore evolution of, of sectors story. Many of the folks that were um, the leaders uh, of the quote-unquote impact investing uh, period um, are not going to be the ones that, that, that cross the chasm uh, uh, as this stuff starts to go mainstream and you're starting to see it happen already. So it's, it's a, in some ways it's an altogether different conversation. Uh, the vocabulary is different. Uh, the demographics of, of the applications the demographics of the investors are, are shifting. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting, you know, time as, as uh, uh, the conferences that dominated this sector will become increasingly uh, marginalized uh, as we start to make this shift into uh, the bona fide mainstream. Well, um, let me take a slight issue with that and, and, and give you a, a little bit different um scenario, which is, I think you're right in terms of the riding up the capital curves. You're seeing, you know, much bigger funds being raised, you know, yours, yours among them, but, but, but others as, as well, numbers that we would have, you know, not thought possible, you know, several years ago. And I think there is kind of a, a, a splitting out of that. But I think that some of the pioneer types that you say will be left behind may also you know continue to be pioneer types and and there's always a new frontier of 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 sectors and and geographies and population targets and and and, and customers and business models that requires a kind of frontier um and you know experimental and innovative um kind of sector and some folks are are sort of better suited to that so i think they'll continue to try to move out to the the next frontier and the mainstream will will follow behind that my example of that which i think you know sort of is 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 what we're calling you know the S, and we've talked about this before that you know that the S in some level is going to be as big or as or 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 bigger than the E in ESG, the social aspects and the investment potential of the kind of rebuild, exactly the thing you were talking about when you said every corporation has to be re- re-engineered, almost like every neighborhood has to be re-engineered, every 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 apartment building has to be re-engineered, every car has to be replaced. That's a mass market phenomenon that reaches very far down the sort of, you know, you know, quintiles of income um, such that it becomes um, something that uh, requires sort of deep community, you know, engagement and, and governance. It can't be sort of done just from, you know, the top. So, so I think what we're going to start to see is a lot of things that actually were in the early years of, of certainly, you know, community development kind of investing and, 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 um, uh, small business finance and those sorts of things in neighborhoods and, and, and affordable housing finance, all of those very bread and butter kinds of financing things, which I know, you know, well, becoming, you know, 
if not growth sectors, at least very attractive sectors, the economics of them being, you've been the, the great teacher of mine in this and things like affordable housing being a, a very um, um, stable and attractive institutional asset. And I think that we're going to start to see, you know, local community-based financing you know, access to finance for entrepreneurs, access to finance for for projects. And I think it might surprise people how big and exciting this very stodgy, you know, sort of, you know, um, sector, you know, has become. I think therein, what you've just described is the main thesis in that model and in that book of Crossing the Chasm. What you've described is the market sector evolving it doesn't necessarily translate that the early pioneers in that will be the ones that serve that sector growth. There's always an assumption that the pioneers will grow to be the ones that emerge as the mega players that, that, that create the change once that market inflects. And, and history would tell you that that's actually not the case. I agree. I agree. That's the innovator's dilemma in a nutshell right there. And, uh, Actually, our example has been this past year, which we called out we in, in, in emerging markets, the small business finance sector. One of the great silver linings of the pandemic was the massive and accelerated digitization of small businesses in emerging markets just to be able to keep open. And once that happened, it opened up all kinds of new channels for financing businesses that the fintechs and others moved into because they had lower transaction costs and they had access to the customers and they had ways of underwriting that were different than and all of the pioneers like you said even some of the old guard you know microfinance institutions but certainly the banks and, and others um, couldn't keep up with that and so we're seeing a new way of financing small business in emerging markets which has been the kind of holy grail of you know development types for decades all of a sudden being taken over by you know enterprise software providers and 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 new fintechs and not and not the development banks and the and the and, and a lot of the the mechanisms so the disruption is real and and you guys have been writing about a related topic which is the legitimization of the word catalytic capital and and i think mm-hmm. in a funny way you know the reading the writings that have gone on in this last few weeks about some of the ngos that uh, applied for carbon credits and the debate on whether, in fact, this was truly additionality, not whether there was wrongdoing, but whether this was, you know, cricket. All right. And, and, and I think that your catalytic capital comments actually have tremendous relevance here. And that is what's going to happen in this phase of the market as, as, as many of these things go mainstream is that, you know, companies, entities, groups need to know who they really are and what they really serve. And I would submit to you that NGOs that uh, have access to different forms of capital, different attributes in that capital should be doing catalytic work. And as markets become increasingly institutionalized or mainstream, they should let um, uh, other forms of capital that potentially are better suited to that, take, uh, take that and scale it. And remain, and, we, and which are cheaper forms of capital, and which are more plentiful forms of capital, and 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 embrace these organizations, these NGOs should embrace their uniqueness and their, you know, I call it power uh, to do uh, markets or applications where uh, commercial ventures can't, uh, and 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 use it to blaze the trail because 
their supporters, their grantors, uh, their capital uh, enables them to do that. And, and I think that the successful NGOs will be the ones that understand that concept. Well, I've, I've been uh, watching that very thing um, at, at your side in, in over the past few years at the Conservation Finance Conference that you helped put on at, at Credit Suisse each year, um, which, which has always featured a, you know, a good representation of exactly those kind of NGOs sort of serving up new projects and new ideas and, and having roots in, in the communities and projects on the ground that, that investors can, can, can get behind and learn from. And then, and then I think the sixth thing that, that, that we're going to take hold this year is, is, is um, you know, there's, there's this sense of globalization. It's not about COVID. It's, it's it, along these sustainability things that, yes, uh, carbon dioxide floats around the world and it's a global issue. But increasingly, I think the conversation is going to migrate towards regionality and it's going to migrate towards the cultural and uh, and I think that that this year we will we will adopt and accept the fact that um, it's not about the Western world coming to the rescue. It, it is it is going to be a global set of trends and requirements, but the conversations will take place increasingly about uh, regional and uh, and and cultural uh, uh, systems. We're seeing that now in uh, food innovation. We're seeing that in terms of of various forms of infrastructure, uh, and um, and whether it's right or wrong, you know, we we, we see this trend happening, and um, and I, and I think that there's distinct positive a- aspects of that. I agree, and and I was gonna I was gonna say, and maybe end on this because I think it, it just picks up on just what you said was, which is not populism as much as popular popularity. Like there's a need for the set of ideas that we're talking about that you're talking about to become um, identified as the growth drivers for prosperity and livelihoods and thriving communities and healthy kids. Um, and those should be majoritarian or super majoritarian um, kind of political positions to have. And so kind of getting the people, as it were, behind uh, this rebuild that you've been describing, I think is going to be a key thing in 2022 for obvious in obvious ways in this country, but in other countries as well, that, um, you know, not some sort of elite affectation anymore, but really, um, really the future of business, the future of the economy, the future of, of communities. Um, uh, future of the planet. Yeah, I think this is really now becoming part of pop culture, and uh, and there's dangers in that as well. But uh, I'm looking forward to getting uh, somebody selling a Ministry of the Future T-shirt. <laughs> Ministry of the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's epic book, which has become kind of the Bible for uh, for for the um, for for a certain class, uh, Dave, which uh, um, we'll be watching. Let's leave it at that. If uh, we come back to Ministry of the Future um, uh, n- next year, and, and you've been proven correct in that, we'll we, we'll 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 be in trouble. So maybe we can um, do something about it in the year to come. So thanks very much. We'll we'll check back with you obviously throughout twenty twenty two. Institutional shift. Dave Chen, Equilibrium Capital. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's going to do it for this special institutional shift edition of the Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Dave Chen, Equilibrium Capital, and the institutional impact at impactalpha.com. Subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, 
job postings, and members-only Agents of Impact calls. Go to impactalpha slash subscribe and use the code podcast100 for a $100 discount. Thanks again to Dave Chen and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, take care.